You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Well, what is it that we do? And, and one of the things that Katie and, and some of the other staff at the East End Community School would do um, was uh, to put food in the lockers of the kids that they knew really needed it. And so I just kept thinking about the lockers, and then just Locker Project uh, popped into my head. But we believed that this would also be a challenging place to start a business, but that it would be a great place to be in business in terms of our, our where we were. We were very early with organic and fair trade coffees, but we we had a, uh, you know, we, we believed that uh, folks shared our value set here and that, that we'd have a chance if we worked hard, which we, which we did work very hard. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 280, Kids, Community, and Coffee airing for the first time on Sunday, January 29th, 2017. What do we do when we find a need, whether in our own communities or in other parts of the world? Today we speak with Katie Wallace and Katie Brown, who are helping ease the hunger of Maine school children through their work with the Locker Project. We also discuss the coffee community and the positive impact of fair trade and organic practices with Bard Coffee co-founder, Bob Garver. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Love Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at Aristel.com. This morning I have with me two Katies who are doing very important work in the world. The first is Katie Wallace. She is the president and founder of the Locker Project, which works with Southern Maine schools to create programs for providing students with healthy class time snacks and take home food. Katie Brown is another founder and also the executive director of the Locker Project organization. And it's really great to have both of you in the studio with us today. Thank, Thank you, I'm really glad to be here. So from what I understand, Katie Wallace, you have a now sixth grader named Ava at King. Yes. And she was sort of your intro to um, the issues that you've been trying to address with this program. Yeah, um, when she was in kindergarten at um, the East End Community School, I volunteered in the classroom and the time that I happened to volunteer was um, part of math and then into snack. And I was really, really shocked to sit there during snack time and look around and see that half a dozen of her friends were just sitting there watching their friends eat. And I spoke to the teacher about it afterwards, and she said that that was completely normal, that not everybody had the ability to bring snack, but her school had a grant in place that provided um, fruits and vegetables for snack time three days a week. So it was really just a problem two days a week. And it 
it seemed like something that myself and my friends in the neighborhood could actually fill that need. We could get snacks into all the classrooms, 24 classrooms, for twice a week, just like a bag of pretzels or a box of crackers. And then it just grew, and it grew, and it grew, and now we have 19 schools. 20. 20. Oh, no. (laughs) And so it continues to grow, it sounds like. So... Katie Brown, what is your connection? How did you get interested in this? Well, I was following um, Katie's progress at the Easton Community School as a friend. And um, at the time, I was serving on the board of the Monjoy Hill Neighborhood Organization and writing uh, little articles here and there for the neighborhood newspaper. And one time I uh, wrote a little blurb for her asking for support in donated foods. And so many people ended up donating not just a lot of food, but some money, um, which I know helped take the burden off her uh, own cash flow that she was always investing uh, into her program. Um, And then one day we just uh, met for coffee and she was talking about the pressure from other schools to grow the program and um, pressure from potential donors to become a nonprofit so that they could donate, you know, uh, sort of tax uh, deductible uh, donations. And we just kind of looked at each other and I said, well, you know, I could start I could start the nonprofit. I've had a lot of experience with that. And we sort of had chills for a few minutes and decided to go ahead and do it. And I said, you could move to the board and be the board president and, and keep the vision, uh, keep us steered forward with your with your vision and you won't have to spend your own money anymore. What was your experience with nonprofits in the past? Every time I've tried to get out of the nonprofit field, I it's it's like the Godfather. I get pulled back in. I'm I've always been very mission driven, um, and so I've worked for it feels like a dozen different nonprofit organizations over the twenty something years that I've been in Portland, and they've really uh, ranged from kind of more uh, hands on social work type organizations to more um, you know board development, um, Portland trails, et cetera, et cetera. Katie, you have um, kind of an interesting background yourself. You actually work at the Blue Spoon. Yeah, I'm up, a server. Up on Monjoy Hill. And you're an artist, in addition to being a mother. So how did you feel when somebody said, hey, um, why don't you do this nonprofit? I felt really overwhelmed, and I was already burnt out. I had been doing it um, at that point. It was my fourth year, and putting snacks into the classrooms in when Ava was in kindergarten grew because we got a grant from Morgan Stanley to create a pilot program through Good Shepherd. So we went from being able to put snacks in the classrooms to being able to um, supply students and families with groceries for the week. So it really changed over those four years. And I got some press um, on Thanksgiving one day as 10 Mainers to be thankful for. And people started reaching out to me to be like, how is this single mom waitress doing this? We need this at our school. And uh, one of my customers at Blue Spoon, Angela Adams, who is an amazing human being, reached out to me and she wanted to have a meeting with me to talk about this. And I was like thinking, oh, she wants to donate. But what she said was, I can see this being a business. And I was just like, ah, because I was so overwhelmed. I was doing this with one other mother, Allison Gray Murray. We were doing it every week. We had just finished delivering turkeys, groceries for the week of vacation, um, 
all the fixings for turkey dinner to 32 families that the school had identified. And I was just so burnt out that when Katie Brown and I met for coffee that cold winter day, I looked deep into her eyes and I was like, I don't want to do this. And she looked deep into my eyes and she said, I should do this. And we just had this moment where we were like, this is amazing. Because it was like, it needed to happen. And I I didn't want to do it. I was so burnt out. And you were ready to go. Yeah, it was perfect timing. Um, Angela, by the way, joined our board immediately too when we formed and she designed our logo. She's our vice president. I think branding's really important because there's um, so much of a stigmatism and shame to poverty, but in our schools, our students aren't embarrassed. They're not ashamed anymore. Like we show up in this really cool looking transit van designed by Angela Adams and we hand out like really good looking produce um, donated by local farmers and Hannaford and, and, and gardeners and, and yeah it's amazing like it not only are we able to get food to food insecure students and families but we're able to like destigmatize the shame of that why is it called the locker project that was just one of those um, kind of driving down route one after a party still trying to come up with a name we had to register um, uh, as a corporation and um, initially was tossing around food for thought as the name for the organization and one morning on NPR I heard a story um, where Jeff Bridges was in Arizona at the ribbon cutting of an organization I think a, a school backpack program food backpack program called food for thought and so I, I decided, okay, well, it's not going to be that. Um, and just uh, I started really thinking about, well, wh what is it that we do? And, and one of the things that Katie and, and some of the other staff at the East End Community School would do um, was uh, to put food in the lockers of the kids that they knew really needed it. And so I just kept thinking about the lockers, and then just Locker Project uh, popped into my head. We were really mindful of not letting the kids be embarrassed by this. So... We had a list um, compiled by the school social worker, the school nurse, the teachers, and even some of the parents themselves of students that could really benefit from this. So we had their locker numbers, and while no one was in the halls, we would go and put the food right in their lockers, in their backpacks, and zip it up, and no one ever had to see it until they got home. And the pantry that we kept the food in for the kids to access, um, we kept in the nurse's office, where it's pretty confidential anyway, so if they were they needed um, food for like crisis or emergency or they wanted to be able to pick the food themselves they could just go down with a teacher or get a pass for the nurse's office and go get whatever they needed and kind of like get some groceries for their family and pack it up and no one needed to know like it was a very um, private respectful way of doing it what year did this start well you started your program in what 2000 2010 and then we got our grant in 2012 and then we started the locker project uh, in 2014 so we've really been around for uh, just about two and a half years so what do you think it is about this particular issue that people want to get behind um, I think that certainly people have a huge heart for those who can't help themselves and those who can't defend themselves 
Um, so, you know, Maine loves its um, our children, animals, and seniors. Um, and it's also, I think, that so many people identify with hunger. Um, so many among us that you would never suppose um, have either recently experienced it or are very familiar with it from their own childhoods. Um, one out of four children in Maine are food insecure, and it's been like that for generations. And so um, statistically, um, probably one out of four adults among us have experienced childhood hunger. Now you talked about um, social work and, and sort of this, the social cause and being mission driven. What's your background? Um, mine is just a very um, loose sort of liberal arts college educated um, jack of all trades kind of background. Um, I have tons of interests and hobbies and whatnot, um, but the one place I've really focused so much of my energy is towards mission-driven projects. So why do you suppose that is? What is it about the mission of this or any of the projects you've worked on that's really spoken to you? It's almost like a vacuum. Like if, if somebody is in need, I can't stand for that not to be addressed. Um, there's always a solution. And when a solution isn't being found um, or acted upon, it, it, it's like it makes me crazy. So it's interesting that you had um, somewhat of a similar response Katie, other Katie, Katie Wallace, uh, when you saw that this child or other children in your daughter's classroom, there was that vacuum. There was there were no snacks. There was nothing for them to eat. It's almost like you couldn't let that go by. They were her friends and her peers, and I just like once you see something like that, you can't unsee it and you can't ignore it. So I have I have a lot of resources. Like even though I couldn't always pay for it myself. I could get other people to pay for it. So everyone wanted to chip in. We have a really amazing community in Portland and anytime there's a problem, people are ready to act. It's it's an interesting thing though because if people are feeling shame because they can't feed their children or they're feeling shame because they are a child who doesn't have enough to eat, then unless somebody helps you identify this, mm. you, you can't really work to help them. It's true. Yeah. Um, and so many people grow up uh, not knowing how to ask, ask for the, the resources that are there, you know, especially if they don't know what the resources are. Um, so much of a large component of our work in schools is the, you know, real hands-on social workers and nurses who... Um, clue into the fact that a child may be hungry and um, typically will uh, start to offer a child like that some food and have it confirmed that indeed um, that person needs some and um, and then that child will start to regularly access our pantry and, and snacks and uh, take food home to the family and whatnot. My daughter, who's in high school, she is a sophomore, and they have worked on hunger as an issue at their high school. And mm -hmm. one of the things that they have found is, though, is that even though there may be a food pantry that is available to people, it is incredibly difficult for someone to overcome the need to go to that pantry and actually get that food. So it's interesting that this starts even as, as younger children, where it's hard to be the one who doesn't have enough. 
One of the things that we do that has really helped with that, um, and other programs in Maine have too, this is uh, with the encouragement of Good Shepherd Food Bank, is that um, we set up regular produce tables at a lot of our schools um, and invite anybody who's walking by to help themselves. Mm-hmm. And they do. And we, we, we don't um, screen anybody. You know, We even encourage teachers to take food home. And that is so destigmatizing, and it helps um, people get in the habit of taking fresh available food so that it's not wasted. And um, through those opportunities, we can talk more openly about the pantry that's also available in the school. You know, we have this um, in the nurse's office, too, if you ever want to uh, stop by and grab some and take some home. We we and we just don't want it to get wasted, so please do. And that spirals, and so uh, kids feel more confident about taking food that is offered to everybody. Um, and it's true that as students get older, it it is they they're more stigmatized. Um, and we are always challenged at the high school level on how to empower kids to be able to take food home. And so many of the kids are just opting to be hungry, which is such a difficult time in their lives to be hungry um, when they're trying to fit in, not feel so um, isolated, um, and focus on their studies for that you know final push uh, into adulthood. And it's really heartbreaking. So um, a lot of us are brainstorming ways that we can help empower um, high school age students to help themselves. What grades do you actually reach now? You said you're in 20 schools. Yep. So what grades do you We're get to? preschool through 12th grades. And this is all within the Portland area? Uh, Greater Portland. We have uh, 10 pantries and 10 schools now in Portland. Uh, including um, we support the intercultural um, support programs at the Center for Grieving Children as well. Um, But we have five pantries in South Portland, just opened a pantry at the Westbrook High School, we're in Falmouth, Saco, and many discussions with other schools throughout Cumberland and York counties. So that's interesting that you have a pantry in Falmouth because Mm. some people would assume that Falmouth has got one of the highest median incomes in the state, and yet this is a town that obviously has need, not unlike other high median income locations. Did that surprise you? It's the real school? Yeah. Well, there's no no school, I mean, there's no town in, in Maine that doesn't have people who are um, experiencing food insecurity for some reason. Um, I mean, it, it affects all people, uh, or can potentially affect all people. And I know in Cape Elizabeth, um, for example, um, there may only be a couple of students at the high school who um, are ever experiencing uh, food insecurity, but what the folks there did for those students was they uh, created a snack room. Um, and made um, snacks available to any kid who wandered into school hungry that morning. You know, I mean, plenty of high school students skip their breakfast, and then an, an hour into school, they're they're hungry. So these snacks are made available for everybody, and it it makes those you know three or four kids comfortable going and and helping themselves. What type of food uh, did you start with? Katie Wallace, when you first were giving this to the limited the classrooms. The very first day, I brought homemade muffins and clementines into Ava's classroom. And then the next week, 
something similar and it got to the point where the kids in our class would see me in the hall and they'd be like what are you bringing tomorrow and I'd be like well what do you want and they all had input and they started like calling me the snack lady in the school but what I would put in each classroom would be Cheez-Its, pretzels, um, shortbread cookies, popcorn and specific classrooms would start finding me and they'd be like we really like the Cheez-Its could we have Cheez-Its again and I'd be like yeah of course so the whole class um, had input on it and it was always on hand for the teachers some classes needed like three boxes to get through the week some classes didn't need any at all so it was really catered to each classroom and uh, for myself, Ava stopped eating the snack that I was packing her and she start, started eating the classroom snack and I would be like, Ava, that's that's not for you, you have a snack and she'd be like, no, everyone else is eating it, I want to be like everyone else and I think that um, echoes what Katie was saying about how when everyone participates, it destigmatizes it and it takes the spotlight off the few kids who actually need it. Well, and food is such an inherently social activity. Mm that we all, if, if somebody is hanging out, having a snack, then why wouldn't we want to sit down and have a snack with them? Right. So now that you've grown through the years, what types of food are you providing to these 20 schools? Um, we, our mission is focused on nutritious foods, so we really make an effort to get as much um, fresh produce as possible. We just got a warehouse space and we're having um, a refrigeration unit built out. So we'll be able to provide um, more produce, but we have canned produce as well. Um, there's always like rice and beans and pasta and sauce. And, and, and certainly a lot of the food that we're stocking in our pantries uh, is filler food. Um, but that's important too, just to keep bellies filled. And a lot of that food is easy to prepare. Um, we have, especially in the last year, um, provided more and more kind of pop-top uh, canned goods like Chef Boyardee raviolis and whatnot um, because we're, we, we have like kindergartners and first graders who, who can't use a stove yet and if they don't even know how to use a microwave they can at least eat out of the can and unfortunately that's, that's a reality for a lot of people. We also have a lot of um, students who are actually homeless in the Portland area. And actually all, all towns. So the shelters are at capacity and they have vouchers to live in motels so they don't necessarily have access to a stove or refrigeration so when we shop for them we shop specifically for things that don't need to be stored they don't need to be heated and they don't need a can opener to open and I mean Chef Boyardee isn't necessarily the best thing to give someone to eat but it's something so you're sort of starting where they are rather than coming in and saying, I'm going to give you some jicama and a mango because those are healthy for you. Exactly. You're going to give them something that they can actually use and eat with the hope that you can continue to build on that foundation perhaps over time. Absolutely. Um, every week we go to the Hannaford in Falmouth and pick up um, produce that they would have otherwise had to throw out uh, or compost um, and take it to a number of our schools. And um, I remember that when we first started doing this, when Katie first started doing that at the East End Community School, and I would uh, help out occasionally, um, maybe a child would take an apple, maybe an orange, but everything else they would just kind of look at and then walk away. Now um, the food gets bagged so fast by them, by the students, and disappears so quickly. It doesn't matter what we have. They'll take onions and avocados and jicama. 
um, and things that we have to look up on the internet to find out what they are. And it's amazing. So you've spoken about Hannaford, and you've spoken about a grant that you received from Morgan Stanley at one point. Who are some of your other partners? Well, we've had many. We've been really blessed by um, some wonderful foundations and businesses. Um, more recently, Andrew Scoggin Savings Bank, um, Camden National Bank, and uh, Town and Country, um, Coffee by Design. Uh, they've been such great, consistent supporters. Um, I don't want to leave anybody else. Morgan Stanley has gotten reinvolved. Uh, offices of uh, Joe Bornstein, Portland Rotary. The Wilkinson um, Foundation. Mm-hmm. And you spoke about Angela Adams being on your board. Who else do you have on your board that really seems to care about this project? Everyone on the board cares so much. Like, we all work really hard. And we really have a great um, diversity of backgrounds on our board, um, both professionally and in terms of uh, personal interests. And um, they're just a, a force to be reckoned with. So bringing it back to the original kind of prompter for this, Ava's now in sixth grade at King. She is. So she's been with you throughout this journey. Yep. And seen what it means to actually put the food in the classrooms and in the lockers. How have you noticed her evolving? Oh my God, that's such a funny question. She is the opposite of me. I actually learned um, at an event that Bissell Brothers threw for us where we made a lot of money and they completely filled our new warehouse space with a food drive. So I learned at that event from a teacher at King that King was really struggling to um, set up their own food pantry because we weren't prepared to yet enroll them. And Ava hadn't told me about it at all. And it was student driven, so they were bringing food in. And when I talked to her about this, I was like, why haven't you brought any food in? Why haven't you told me? And she's like, because I knew you would get involved. <laughs> and she didn't want me at the school embarrassing her. She thought I would be there all the time. <laughs> and this is like her time to become independent and break away from me. <laughs> well, that sounds about right for a middle schooler, really. So, so she would rather see her peers go without just so I didn't embarrass her. <laughs> well, it could be just a phase she's working through. Yeah. <laughs> so... What is it that you hope to get out of um, your work with the Locker Project? You said you've now been a nonprofit for two and a half years, and you've been doing this work for significantly longer. What do you hope to see out of this organization? Well, we won't be able to do it ourselves, but by um, a growing number of collaborators, we really hope that that statistic of one out of four food insecure children in Maine um, starts to really shift over especially the next 10 years. Uh, when I first moved to Portland, um, Maine had one of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the whole nation. And I remember um, in the 90s, there was a real concerted effort among um, legislators and social workers and uh, media, etc., to try to shift that. And a couple years ago, there was a, a statistic announced that now we had one of the lowest rates in the nation. And I sort of feel like we're poised to do that with hunger in Maine as well. There are so many people attuned to this to this issue at the moment um, and putting their efforts together. And I really think we're going to see that shift. And how about you, Katie Wallace? Um, for me, I would like to see poverty go away entirely, but if that's not happening any time in the future, um, what I hope is that these children um, 
grow up feeling really cared for by their community and they're able to connect to people and not harbor that stigmatism of shame and they get to grow into these fabulous adults who remember where they come from and that people were helping them and that's who they become in the world people that are able to look around and see their neighbor struggling and and ask their neighbor how can i help you so that's what i'm hoping for well I will second that um, that hope and that wish, and I, I encourage people to learn more about the Locker Project. Um, I encourage people to donate to the Locker Project, or if they need food from the Locker Project, then I'm sure that they can connect in with one of the um, schools in Absolutely. the area. I've been speaking with Katie Wallace and Katie Brown, who are the president and executive director, respectively, of the Locker Project, and both co-founders of the organization. Um, it's really been a pleasure, and I appreciate all the work you're doing here in the Portland area. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Lisa. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. Today I have with me in the studio Bob Garver, who has been roasting coffee for 25 years. He and his wife and partner, Carmen, own both Bard Coffee, a roaster and retailer in Portland's Old Port, specializing in single-origin, micro-lot coffees, and Wicked Joe Organic Coffees, a wholesale coffee roasting company in Topsom, specializing in organic and fair trade certified coffees. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So I must say that I'm, I am a regular um, enjoyer of Bard and the Bard experience, and um, I did not actually know that you were, you were also Wicked Joe. Yes, Carmen and I own both companies. So tell me about tell me about that progression. Did that happen at the same time that you owned this coffee shop and then and also had this wholesale business, or did this, did one happen first? Uh, we started roasting uh, whole coffee uh, in Brunswick uh, wholesale as Wicked Joe first in 2004 and then in about 2009 along with a few others uh, who are not uh, involved anymore uh, we opened Bard Coffee uh, in Portland in the Old Port. So why the interest in coffee? Well I'd been in coffee for uh, over a decade prior to that I started roasting coffee in Santa Cruz California in 1992 and uh, had a similar experience there. I started roasting coffee in 1992, and uh, in 1993, I opened a small uh, coffee shop nearby uh, so that I could have really direct contact with my customers. Uh, It's difficult sometimes with wholesale where you don't always get to communicate directly to the people that are drinking and, and enjoying your coffee. So we did the same thing there. We had a roastery and then a separate coffee shop. And um, 
and we did that for over a decade there from 92 to 2003. Uh, we really decided, we had three young girls, uh, we decided that we, we wanted to raise them in Maine. And uh, my wife and I are both from the Northeast and we really were coming home. And so we sold our business there, came to Maine and opened Wicked Joe, an organic coffee roasting company in 2004. And, uh, and then did what we had done previously. We kind of missed the, the, having a shop that was our own. So we decided to, 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 um, to open Bard so that we could have that, that direct contact. So what was it about coffee that, that got you interested in the first place? You know, prior to that, I lived in, the, in 90 and 91 into 92 in Turkey the country uh, and um, I just had some really remarkable experiences around coffee um, both culturally having my fortune read in my coffee grounds uh, but also probably more significantly in in relationship building I would meet with the people that I would work with uh, and that was how we got to know each other over coffee Initially, it was frustrating because I was eager to get to work, but culturally, it was an experience that where we were slowing down, and I really came to appreciate that and got to know, to really know uh, the people that I was working with uh, much better, and uh, which also made doing business a lot better. And um, and I just came to appreciate what happens over coffee probably more than anything, and also the rituals and in a place like Turkey are so, um, so wonderful and um, that, that it's hard not to get sort of caught up in the magic. So when I came back to the United States, that was really fresh in my mind and, and, and I saw what coffee could be, I think, and what it could do for people. It's, it's the rituals and the sort of relationships, I think, that really drew me to coffee. What were you doing before? I was in the service, actually. I was a captain in the army. So that's that's kind of an interesting shift from yes. being in the military to deciding that you wanted to work in coffee. It is, um, uh, but it felt very natural for me. Um, uh, I, I was very proud of my service, uh, but I but I knew that I wanted to do something different at that point. And, um, and I knew that, that I wanted to do something that was uniquely mine. And, um, and coffee really provided that opportunity for me, something that I could be passionate about and hopefully have some sort of an impact. And how did that work with you and your wife and partner, Carmen? Well, I started out uh, in Santa Cruz uh, by myself. Carmen and I had originally met when we were both in college in the Northeast, and um, and we uh, and so I was out there for about five years before I was able to convince her to come join me and to sort of leave her profession to move to Santa Cruz, uh, live on a sailboat with me in the yacht harbor, which was uh, probably a 
step down for her, but it was very magical for us. And uh, and to sort of join me, she she joined uh, me as my partner then, and we've been uh, partners ever since. And so for her, I think. Um, it was a lot of fun you know in the early days I'd be roasting the coffee and she would be knocking on doors usually with at least one baby on her hip if not both hips and uh, and uh, we had very humble beginnings and uh, and I would you know we wouldn't trade that time in our lives for anything um, I think that she dove in and embraced it uh, but it was a a big change for her obviously what did she do before? She has a master's in psychology, and she worked with different populations. Uh, she started out, uh, I think she, she was the, um, the project manager for the first mobile AIDS van in, uh, in, in, uh, the, uh, in Westchester County, New York, just uh, north of the city. And um, then she worked with other populations, such as uh, she was the director of clinical counseling for a, for a major regional inpatient rehab center working d with counseling people that were struggling with these kinds of issues. Um, and, uh, and she was, I think, very good at that. And, uh, but I think that she was eager for a new challenge, too. And um, we've really built a, a, a life together that we're grateful for and, and, and find joy in. So you moved back to the Northeast and you have, did at that time you had three daughters or did? We had three daughters. It was the birth of our youngest, Frankie, who, who that really made us feel like, like, you know, we wanted to be closer. We were the only ones in California on the West Coast, and we really wanted to be uh, closer to our extended family. So you were trying to grow your family and your business and then businesses simultaneously. Yeah. And continue your good relationship with your wife. That must have been an interesting time for you. It was. You go through a lot of struggles uh, when you're trying to build a business. Um, we had uh, many of the challenges that that people face uh, 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 when we came to Maine. It's a challenging place to, to do business in many ways. Um, we came here really because this is where we wanted to raise our daughters and our family. Um, and we thought, um, but we believed that this would also be a challenging place to start a business, but that but that uh, it would be a great place to be in business in terms of our, our, where we were. We were very early with organic and fair trade coffees, but we, we had a, uh, you know, we, we believed that uh, folks shared our value set here and that, that we'd have a chance if we worked hard, which we, which we did work very hard, uh, that, we, that this would be a place that we would have an opportunity uh, a, f a shot at creating, you know, a new life uh, in, in a different environment. Um, and uh, so, so uh, we, we faced, you know, many of the challenges that I think small business owners face um, had to start from scratch. And uh, you may be getting at that it's challenging to work together with the person that you spend your life with maybe uh, in other 
aspects? I don't. Well, I, I just meant sort of yeah. the whole kitten caboodle that you're you're raising your daughters and your and we your were our daughters were uh, our youngest had just been born. Uh, our middle daughter Lizzie uh, was not yet two, and our eldest Maggie was not yet three. So they were babies, and it was a uh, it was it was a uh, probably a risky proposition. But we knew that that we wanted to be closer to our family, and we also thought Maine would be really an ideal place to raise our daughters. We wanted them to have some magic in their life every day and this is a place where we felt like just the the beauty here and the and the culture in Maine was a place that that they could have that and um and the business was really I don't want to say secondary we just wanted a fair shot kind of and uh and we faced a lot of challenges there as well we wouldn't change anything I don't think though um during that period of time I fought cancer. We're trying to raise our daughters. We're trying to start a business, and and the economy wasn't always supportive of that. And um, and Maine was uh, our our, the community uh, here in Maine supported us, and we're grateful for that. And um, and we were able to really um, do what we dreamt of. in part because, like, like all small business owners, we worked hard, and uh, in large part, we're just grateful to the community. Uh, Maine has challenges, but the people here really, I think, embrace the things that are important to us: quality, um, uh, a commitment to sustainability, and um, and best practices that we kind of embrace, and. Um, and I don't know that we could have um, really uh, built our business in the manner that we uh, are, are proud of doing uh, anywhere else. Why was it important for you to be an early adopter of organic and fair trade coffee? We had been doing organic coffee since the early 90s, really selling organic coffees in Santa Cruz, California. So this is just part of our DNA. Fair trade started to come about a bit later, and it was very natural for us to to adopt that, initially really because um, we really un- understood what was happening to small farms in the United States and what that does to the fabric of communities. And uh, this was a way to really connect uh, with small farmers was very difficult as a small coffee roaster to be able to to purchase from very small farmers and the only way that they can do that and to, to, and then to sustain that way of life is through these cooperatives and um, and so we were drawn to to fair trade it was a natural evolution when we were able to start doing that um, it was natural for us to do that that was just our lane uh, that was it just flowed naturally, and then, um, and then as we we're able, uh, we've for the last uh, ten years or so, we've been making our own a lot of our own trips, and visiting not only individual farms and farmers, but cooperatives and mills and things. So that we, on top of the certification that we have, we're also 
of building very direct relationships. The two are not mutually exclusive. And so, um, so uh, that's just been a natural evolution. I don't know that we ever made a conscious decision around that. I think it was just kind of our makeup and who we were, the kind of business that we wanted to operate. Where does your coffee come from? We, uh, we purchase green coffee from really all over the world. Uh, all coffee is grown in the tropics. And so there's basically a band around, you know, around the equator, so to speak, that where coffee grows. And we purchase from all coffee-growing regions, from Central America and South America, from Africa, and then from Southeast Asia, which would be Sumatra and Java and places like that. And you've described having um, very direct relationships with individuals who are growing the coffee. What is that? How does that benefit them? Well, the it can benefit uh, producers in in a number of different ways. Uh, some of the ways that I think are unexpected is that uh, that by visiting with them and building these relationships, it gives them confidence. They know that we're committed to their to that relationship. We're demonstrating commitment by going, which initially we I thought that. Because we, we gain so much from doing that. We're, we're more involved and collaborative with them as our relationships grow. And that has a, has, a, has a very profound impact on quality and consistency. And we know. So, so, so we're benefiting, hopefully, as much or, or you know, we're, we're, it's beneficial to both parties. So we're getting quality and consistency and um, they're getting commitment from us. It's very challenging for growers. Um, they face a lot of challenges. Uh, most people, most people um, uh, w- couldn't, couldn't really grasp. It's a very difficult life sometimes in these places. So not only by establishing these long-term relationships are, are, um, are we able to... to, to to help support a way of uh, that way of life, which in turn benefits us because we're getting these great coffees. We can count on getting those coffees. But for them, I found that there's such a tremendous amount of impact for them because as quality increases, they they get to we get to pay them more for their coffee, which we don't object to because we want the highest quality coffee. And um, and in a and probably more, like I started to say before, I think one of the most profound ways is just the sense of confidence, I think, that, that is engendered in them in terms of, of, of their relationship with us. And they know that, 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 that if they do their part, which is to work hard like we do, and, um, and to create really great coffees, use best practices is very important to us. And that's part of what we're visiting for to see what's going on there and to make sure that they're sort of um, representing themselves properly to make sure that the impact that we think we're having is actually happening. Um, but they, they come to it with a level of confidence that assuming that they do those things that we've agreed to, that we're going to be there next year for them. And that is huge because there is so much uncertainty in, in uh, the supply chain in terms of 
what am I, what's going to happen next year? They know that because they have a partnership with us, um, that they can count on us through thick and thin. And we know that we can count on them through thick and thin as well. So it, it really is uh, very symbiotic and, and mutually beneficial. The, the investment that we're able to make. We've also had producers come visit us here in Maine. So it's not just one way, although we do uh, uh, the lion's share of that travel, but we've had some of our producers come visit us here, and uh, that's really exciting, obviously, for our staff and people, and we can share that with them directly. You've also described a situation whereby money that... Um, is put into the fair trade system ends up being um, distributed for for good purposes for mm -hmm. building of infrastructure and schools and um, basically bettering the communities of that are um, supporting the growers yes so what types of things have you actually been able to see when you've gone to visit ah uh, boy uh, we've seen uh, roads uh, that service communities that didn't exist before because some of these farms are very remote so now they have access to the communities we've seen roads that were in very poor shape one year in much better shape the next year I've got pictures of one year visiting a farm where there are where there are no electrical lines or poles in that community and the next year when I take a picture of the same thing I see electric lines I mean that's huge uh, uh, I've seen schools that were built and in the process of being built with those community premiums that uh, and, and I think what's so uh, I've seen uh, waste management systems set up which is really powerful improved water systems for the communities, um, uh, microloans that go to uh, support uh, the farm, the, the, the families, frankly, not being so dependent upon the, the coffee income that they have, but uh, that they can start either uh, small businesses within the family that support that, or they can plant other crops on the farm, which adds more biodiversity and makes a, a, a better uh, a better farm and a, and a better environment uh, for their families and their children to grow up in. Um, I think uh, uh, so I, I, I've seen so much impact and I think what's most powerful about that model now we also do we make direct contributions by the way to farmers and things that are above that. It's personal. And so we'll go and talk to a farmer uh, or, or a partner and say, what can we do to, to, to support you? Because it, be, by the way, because it benefits us if we can improve quality. And they might say, um, I could use another solar dryer. And we'll say, well, how much is that going to cost? How can we, how can, this benefits us, right? But also it will benefit them. So we're having a conversation, collaborating to the point where now, um, we're participating in decisions around what varieties to grow based on what the market here demands as opposed to what they've necessarily traditionally grown and and what kind of quality we're looking for that's going to enable as time goes on for them to demand even more uh, for their coffee which benefits them because quality improves and if something was to happen to us they're much better off for the relationship they have with us. Um, I think what's most powerful, though, about all of that is that 
we're listening to them, not telling them what we want to do for them, but asking them what they need. And either we can partner in that with them in very personal projects or through the fair trade premium system. We've, uh, through the fair trade premium, due to our purchases over $500,000, a half a million dollars have gone into the communities we work with. Last year alone, over $100,000 went to our, our partners and even more will go this year. And they get to decide what they want to do with that money. And I've spoken directly with so many of our partners and I'll say, what is this doing for you? Is this benefiting you, this relationship, right? Like we want to make sure that we're not kidding ourselves. And what, what do you love about this and that? And almost universally, many of them will say, I love when we get together as a community and we vote on what we're going to do with our premiums. And so this is, um, they're providing great coffee to us. And part of the benefit to that is not only to each individual farmer who is guaranteed a living wage through the purchases, but on top of that, the communities benefit. And that's where the communities also come together through these organizations. And um, they make a decision on what they want, not what, like I said, what we want to what we want to do for them. So that I think is most gratifying. And it's really fun for me now to go and see what's happened when I visit next year. And I'll see the changes. And that I think is really exciting and gratifying because our business is changing too. And we want to share that with them because we're better. And, 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 and I think all of our staff, which who we care about most, are, are, are hopefully um, benefiting from the relationships we have with these farmers. and. Uh, and cooperatives and mills and uh, so we want them to know that as well. It seems as though um, it is now possible to have a career in coffee. I know that you have many long-term employees and I think we had one of them, Brittany, on the show a few years ago and it, it's it's been actually very important to um, provide these long-term opportunities to people in our community, because I think sometimes it's it initially it was it was possible to just say, oh well, somebody so and so is a barista and it's just a part-time thing. But but you're actually these are careers that you have been able to make possible for people. It's an important thing that you're doing. Yeah, um, yes, that's one big change in coffee um, and the way people view coffee, just like people view. I mean, the coffee community and opportunities in coffee have changed in similar ways to craft beer and artisan food. And, and the whole scene in Maine is, is really vibrant and, uh, and um, quality-focused. And, yeah, in coffee, it's been really wonderful to see the, uh, the opportunities. Coffee is such a... a it's 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 a big industry and so i think a lot of people do come in as baristas and some really fall in love with it some of it some people are you know obviously it's a transitional type job but there are many that really really fall in love with it because it is it's amazing i mean coffee we love coffee we love doing what we do 
we love roasting coffee. We love brewing and preparing coffee for people and, um, and the hospitality aspect of that. Um, we love interacting with farmers at origin. Um, it's, it's a very big and complex kind of industry and there's a lot of room for people to, to grow, frankly. And um, yeah, we're trying very hard to get people out to, to participate in industry events, to uh, to do which is professional development and uh, actually getting people trained and and investing in training ourselves so that people that are interested in in making a career out of it have an opportunity whether it's moving into the roasting side of the house there are people that have been in roasting that are now moving into the into the travel and green coffee purchasing part of the house and uh, taking some of the load off of me in that regard um, and uh, and uh, often the place that that starts is what at the barista level where people where our baristas are very highly trained we're incredibly proud of our staff we've got you know we've got people that are that are extremely extremely talented and um and that applies to both at bard uh, the staff there and also at our roasting business we don't exist without them and we're not great without them uh and and we're trying to be great, um, not big, not, uh, but just great. And uh, and uh, our employees make that happen, and that's uh, facilitated by by the by the industry. The industry is is just a great place to learn and grow, and it often starts at the barista level. I've been speaking with Bob Garver, who has been roasting coffee for 25 years and who, along with his wife and partner, Carmen, owns both Bard Coffee and Wicked Joe Organic Coffees. It's really been great to have this conversation with you. I appreciate the time you've taken to come in. And thank you for the great coffee. Thank you. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 280, Kids, Community, and Coffee. Our guests have included Katie Wallace, Katie Brown, and Bob Garber. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit LoveMainRadio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our kids, community, and coffee show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, 
and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.